Hello friends, Kerrigan Skelly from Pinpoint Evangelism and Refining Fire Fellowship here with you today. Well this video is going to be the last video in the series of this foundation for Refining Fire Fellowship on the doctrine of man and sin. Uh, the doctrine of anthropology and hamartiology according to scripture. So we've looked at lots of different things so far through the fall of mankind and what that what happened with that. Did a lot of different passages concerning the doctrine of original sin. Looked at Romans chapter seven. And today we're going to tackle this uh, these two subjects of unintentional sin and of uh, sins of ignorance. Some people who believe that we can't uh, live completely holy lives will say that um, one of the reasons why is because we always have sin in our life. Uh, either we sin unintentionally every single day, or we sin in ignorance every single day. And so we're going to tackle these two things today and go to several different scriptures to talk about them. Before we get into those uh, two subjects, I want to make one thing clear. When it comes to sin, uh, scripture differentiates, and we, therefore we must differentiate between what God sees as sin, because God is omniscient and knows all things, and what he accounts to men as sin. What he calls men sinners for doing. And so since God is omniscient, he has all knowledge, he knows all things that are sinful, or uh, all things that are sin. And, um, you know, so, but there's situations where people are unaware, they're ignorant, they have lack of understanding as to whether something is sinful or not, uh, from God's perspective. And so, when it comes to those situations, God does not hold such people accountable for sin, and does, God does not call such people sinners. And we saw this a little bit in the Romans 7 teaching, in this foundation of the doctrine of man and sin. And so, um, that we must make that clear. So, when we come to these different passages, like we're going to see one today in 1 John 5, that's going to deal with this issue, and, and a lot of the whole teaching today will deal with this issue of sins, uh, unintentional sins and sins of ignorance. So let's go ahead and, and uh, get into Leviticus chapter 4, uh, which is where we'll see uh, unintentional sin talked about the most. And uh, just, just to help you understand, um, unintentional sin is never mentioned in the New Testament. It doesn't mean it can't happen. Of course, because people can still be unaware of things in, in the New Testament or in New Testament times. But in the Old Testament, we have other laws that God was holding the Jewish people accountable to obey that he does not hold Gentiles accountable to obey. And so, these are things that God gave the Israelites through the law of Moses. These are things that were not considered laws that any person was um, required to keep before this time. At least not that we know of. Um, but there was a law that men were required to obey before the time of Moses. That's why we see uh, Cain called a sinner for killing his brother Abel. That's why we see God saying about people right before the flood, people who died in the flood, that every intent of thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. That's why you hear God calling Noah perfect and righteous and just, and that he walked with God. In Genesis uh, 6, 9, Genesis 7, 1. And so... There was a law before Moses, a moral law, and we know according to Romans 2 that it was written upon men's hearts. You know, even Gentiles who don't have the law of Moses, uh, they have a law within them. Uh, their conscience also bearing witness. And so there is a law of God that everyone is familiar with, and God will hold people, everyone accountable for. It's what he will judge every single person by um, when they stand before him. And so uh, when it comes to the Old Testament, and we're about to read Leviticus chapter 4, it comes to unintentional sins, there can be a lot of times things that people just were not aware of, because there are a lot of laws in the Old Testament, and, uh, you know, a lot of the laws were not memorized or, you know, devoted to their memory yet when it came to obeying these things. So I want, I want you to have that in mind when we're coming to this passage and, and why you don't see those kind of things in the New Testament times. Okay, Leviticus chapter 4, and we'll start in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally, 
against any of the commandments of the Lord and anything which ought not to be done and does any of them. If the anointed priest sins, bring guilt on the people, and let him offer to the Lord for his sin which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish as a sin offering. So we see the first uh, time unintentional sin is mentioned. Uh, it says a person a person has sinned unintentionally, and then it goes and talks about the priest who has sinned, the anointed priest. Go down to verse, and then after that it tells you what they should do. I'm not going to go into details about that. It doesn't apply to what we're talking about today. But obviously they are meant to, they have to make an offering for their sin. And it says basically the same thing after every time we see here about someone sinning unintentionally. Now you see in verse 13. Now if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done against something against any of the commandments of the Lord, and anything which should not be done, and are guilty. When the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin, and bring it before the tabernacle of meeting. Okay, so they've done it. Now we have the whole congregation of Israel, if any among them sins unintentionally, and it's hidden from the eyes of the assembly. So, um, what I want to point out to you, though, is verse 14. When the sin which they have committed becomes known, then they're take action. It's only then that they take action. They, I mean, they can't offer... God never tells them to offer up a sacrifice for sin which they are unaware of or that they don't know about. And uh, you see in verse 13, according to verse 14, that they did not know about it. So that they weren't required to do anything about it if they were unaware of it or unknown, it was unknown to them. But as soon as they became aware of it, now they're uh, re- obligated, responsible to do something about it. Okay, so you see the, the priests first, and then the whole congregation, and then uh, verse 22. When a ruler has sinned and done something unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord and his God, and anything which, ought not, which should not be done, and is guilty, or if a sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, he shall bring as an offering a kid of the goats, a male without blemish. So, uh, when he becomes aware of this sin, it comes to his knowledge, it's then that he's obligated to bring an offering uh, for his sin. And that's from the ruler of the people, the leaders. Verse 27. If anyone among the, uh, any one of the common people sins unintentionally by doing something against any commandments of the Lord and anything which ought not to be done and is guilty, or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, then he shall bring as in his offering a kid of the goats, a female without blemish, for his sin which he has committed. So we see uh, two things here in these four different parts. We see the four groups of people that you know with, the priest, the congregation, the rulers, and one of the common people. And um, you see that each time that they're only expected to do something. And you see that when it comes to talks to the priest, it doesn't say anything about um, him becoming aware of it, but uh, we can assume from the other three times, it's the same exact situation being done here, because it was done unintentionally because he was unaware of it. If you are aware something is wrong, there's no way you could do it unintentionally. Sin is always intentional if you have knowledge of it and you're aware of it, and you're doing, it, you're, you're, uh, doing something against the knowledge you do have. But we see in all four situations... <laughs> Then an offering is made, is made when they become aware of it, um, and it's only then. And so, what it says is, when they actually committed the sin, and they are guilty, you know, in some sense, because they've done this crime against God's law, but they're not guilty in the sense that God has held it against them because they're unaware of it. And so, they must become aware of this sin before they can offer a sacrifice for their sins, which is like in the New Testament for someone to going and confessing their sins and repenting of their sin. That's what someone does when they bring an offering. They're admitting their guilt and they're turning from it. They're not just bringing an offering just to bring it. And so, even in the Old Testament times, uh, where people didn't have the Holy Spirit living inside of them, um, they didn't have the teachings of Jesus or the apostles yet, they still, um, if they were unaware of something, uh, they were not required to do something about it until they were aware of it. Okay, so that, that is what unintentional sin is in the Old Testament, which is where it's the only place where you see unintentional sin put together. Okay? 
Um, so I, I think we kind of see the both perspectives here. You see God's perspective, they've committed a sin. They've broken his law. Uh, they're guilty in his eyes. But until they become aware of it, they can't repent or confess of it or bring their offering before him. So you see God's perspective and you see man's perspective. So God's not really holding it against them until they actually uh, are aware of it and then they're required to do something about it. Now if they don't bring their offering, guess what? They're not going to have forgiveness for their sins. God will continue to hold them as guilty and hold it against them. So this is what you see with unintentional sin uh, in the Old Testament. Now one verse in the New Testament that people... uh, We'll, we'll try to use to say we sin unintentionally all the time, we just don't know about it, is 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8. Now, 1 John chapter 1, uh, 1 John is written uh, to Christians, and it's written for the most part to warn them about these this false group of Christians, so-called, uh, who say they have some kind of special knowledge, some special understanding that no one else has, that they need them to have, and that's called the Gnostics. Now the Gnostics, among other things, believed such things as the God of the Old Testament was inferior to the God of the New Testament. That the Creator God was inferior to the God who who served, who uh, who we serve and worship as Christians. They believe that the in dualism, that the, the in the flesh and spirit, that uh, your flesh, which is inherently evil, you know, this, the skin we have, this body we're in, is inherently evil. Uh, but that the spirit uh, could be holy even though the flesh was evil. And so because they believe this about the flesh, they believe that Jesus Christ really didn't come in the flesh in a physical body. Because if he did, he would have been evil. They also believe that Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross. That it was actually meant to uh, made to look like that, but it was actually Judas who died in his place. Um, the Gnostics also believed in predestination, that God picks and chooses who's going to be saved and who isn't. Uh, they believed that people couldn't lose their salvation uh, because, you know, your flesh could be sinning and doesn't really account against you for your spirit. So these are some of the things that Gnostics believed. And First John was an epistle, because John was one of the latest apostles. He lived to be the you know around 100 A.D. And um, so he dealt with these Gnostics more than the other apostles did. I don't even know if the Gnostics were around before, you know, the 60s A.D. when the last other apostle died. So, what we see here is him dealing with this. And people will take one verse from 1 John, and, uh, you know, there's two other purposes for why 1 John is written, and you see this, and um, actually three other purposes. 1 John 1, four says, And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. Okay, so that's one purpose, that your joy may be full. Number two, First uh, John two one, my little children, th- uh, these things I write to you that you may not sin. So he writes that you joy may be full and you may not sin. It's not that they go together to me. I mean, when I when I've sinned in the past, my joy wasn't full. I lost my joy. Uh, but when I'm living a holy life, I have a fullness of joy. And First John five thirteen, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So he's written to them that a joy may be full, uh, that they won't sin. And that they that they may know they have eternal life. And I, I assert to you, I submit to you that all these three things go hand in hand. But let's look at the verse that people will say uh, supposedly proves that we always, as Christians, have to have sin in our lives. And if we don't say we always have sin in our lives, then we're a liar. First John one eight. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Okay, now. If we say we have no sin. Now that's in the present tense, so it's basically saying if we say we don't presently have sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So people will say, because it's in present tense there, uh, that if you say at any point in time in your life that you don't have sin in your life, then you're deceiving yourself and the truth is not in you. But you see the, the twist in it. The people have isolated this verse, 1 John 1, eight, and it goes directly opposed to what 1 John 2, one says. That he writes to them that they may not sin. Well, John, don't you realize that only three verses before that verse, or you know, three sentences, I guess, for him, they didn't have verses in his time, just three sentences before that, you, you, you wrote that we have to always have sin in our life. So why would one of your purposes in writing this letter that we wouldn't sin if we always have to have sin in our life presently? 
And so you see the inherent contradiction with even John's writings here. And so, um, but they'll say, you know, you know, we always have sinner lives, even if you're unaware of it. Well, my question for such people is, well, if you're unaware of it, how do you know it's in there? How do you know you have sin in your life always if you're always unaware of it? Um, so they're making a claim based upon ignorance, which is a really faulty foundation to make a claim upon. And so, but let's, I want to read some of the rest of this, uh, 1 John to see in 1 John 1 8, this idea that we always have to have sin in our lives, uh, presently, or we're dece- or we're lying to ourselves, we're deceiving ourselves, the truth isn't in us, if that really flies, if that's really what John is saying here, or if he's saying something else. So let's start in, in uh, 1 John 1 and verse 5. This is a message that we heard from him and declared to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So we see here that there was a message that uh, was given to John, and he declares unto this, these people that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So he's almost refuting this Gnostic interpretation that the God of the Old Testament was bad and evil, and the God of the New Testament is good. He's saying, no, there's no darkness at all in God. And then he says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, with God, and that's what you know, that's what eternal life is, friend. John seventeen three says, This is eternal life, knowing Gnosko, knowing God the Father, and the one he has sent. So knowing God and knowing Jesus is eternal life. And he's saying here, you know, it's fellowship with God is eternal life. If we claim to have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So how do you comport that with the common interpretation of first John one eight? It's not possible, friends. He's saying if you have sin in your life, walking in darkness, then you can have fellowship with God. And you are, you are lying if you say you do have fellowship with God. So if you say you're a Christian, but you're saying you're, you're sinning every day and you have fellowship with God, you're a liar. And the truth is not in you. And you do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light. Now, how is God in the light, friends? Is he walking according to his knowledge? Does he have any sin in his life? No, he's walking according to the light he had, which is all light, of course, for him. And we must walk in that same light. We must walk in the light as he's the light. Whatever we know to do, we should be doing. Whatever we know not to do, we shouldn't be doing. And that's walk. That's the, the, the definition of walking in the light. Um, and if we do that, then we have fellowship with each other. Christians, true Christians, have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses from all sin. So the precondition to you being, cleansing, being cleansed from all your sin is that you've forsaken all sin. And you're walking in that holiness. Otherwise, you don't have the cleansing of Jesus' blood. Now, of course, some people would say it's work salvation, but of course, I don't agree with that. I think work salvation, as defined by the scriptures, is uh, trying to obey the law of Moses to be saved, like circumcision, uh, and so on and so forth, which is what you see addressed in Galatians and Acts 15 and Colossians and Ephesians and Romans 2 through 4. You know, see, Paul addresses it over and over again. Uh, but uh, obedience is required for you to have fellowship with other Christians and for you to have the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse you from all sins. And then, of course, we have verse 8, but book end, the book ends of verse 8 are verse 7 and verse 9. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's think about this, friends. Let's say you're one of those Christians out there who believes... We always have to have sin in our life, and if you don't always have sin in your life, then you're not a Christian, and uh, you're deceiving yourself, and the truth is not in you. You believe that. Well, what do you do with verse 9? Of course, we looked at verses 5 through 7, but what do you do with verse 9? Because it says the moment you confess, the moment you homologeo, you begin to hate your sin, you confess with God, you agree with God about your sin, that's filthy and nasty, and you repent of it. The moment you do that, and here's a problem, some of you probably haven't done that, but the moment you do that, He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So are you telling me the moment that God cleanses you of all unrighteousness, that you get off your knees from your prayer and you begin to sin the next second? I hope not. Because you have to at least admit, even if you are sinning frequently and you call yourself a Christian, you have to at least admit that the moment you confess your sins, till the next moment you choose to sin, 
which should be a long time, if at, ever again at all, because um, that would prove you actually are repentant and you truly are confessing your sins. I mean, if you're confessing your sins, but you're going right back to it next minute, are you really confessing? Are you really repenting of your sins? I mean, if someone came up to you and punched you in the face and said they were sorry, and then, you know, maybe a year or two later they did it again, you might think, you may agree they were sorry the first time, they just decided to do it again, but if they did it every second, or did it even every day, or did it even twice a week, you wouldn't think they were ever sorry. You wouldn't really think they were ever a homo game, repenting, uh, confessing, agreeing with you about what you're doing is wrong. If they really agreed it was wrong, they would stop doing it. So you'd have to, if you're going to hold the verse 8 says we always have to sin in our life, you have to say that the moment you get up from confessing your sin, you begin to, you begin to sin again. And so when does a confession stop? Not only that, but if you go back up to verse 7 just for a second, how can you ever have fellowship with other true Christians? In fact, if all Christians are always sinning all the time, every single day, then none of them can ever have fellowship with anybody, any other Christian, because there really are no true Christians. And no one's ever uh, cleansed uh, by the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay, First John uh, 1.10. And we said that we have not sinned, we, have, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So that's just talking about, if you're saying you've never sinned. Uh, I don't think any Christian would say that, that they've never sinned. Obviously, you have to admit you have sinned in order to become a Christian. Um, First John 2, when I read it before, My little children, these things that I write to you, that you so that you may not sin. So the whole purpose is that you wouldn't sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate of the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So, obviously, as a Christian, I believe that I can sin. I believe I'm tempted, I'd say, about every day, sometimes even more than once a day, to sin. Although that temptation seems to fade more and more as the years go by, and I, begin, I continue to walk in holiness and stay in my prayer closet and and hide his word in my heart and preach the gospel. Um, but uh, there's always a possibility of sinning, as long as there's a, there's, a uh, there's temptation there. As long as there's free will there, which I think we have until we, until we die. Even after we die, we have free will. And so, uh, Christians do have the possibility of sin. That's why it says, if. But notice it doesn't say when. See, you, you, you professing Christian there, who will say 1 John 1 is saying that we always have to have sin in our lives at all times, you're basically saying that it's a matter of when we sin next, not a matter of if. As a Christian, my mindset is I'm never going to sin again. That's my mindset. That's my purpose. That's my will, that I'll never sin again. Now, that's my will and my purpose right now. But for all I know, there may be a point in time in the future that temptation will come. Instead of realizing that that temptation is common to man and remembering that, instead of taking the way out that God provides... Instead of remembering that God is not limited to beyond what I'm able to bear, I may choose to give in to temptation and sin. But right now, my heart, my will, my purpose is to never sin again. Now, if I sin, which is what it says here, if, conditional, if you sin, not when, we have an advocate of the Father, Jesus Christ, your righteous. So if, if you're a Christian, if you sin, then you have an advocate of the Father. You can come back, you can repent, you can confess again, get cleansing of sin again. But you need, you know, you don't need to start walking in holiness. You take every uh, precaution that there is to make sure that you don't go back to that same sin and keep doing it. And so many Christians are not doing that. Professing Christians are not doing that. They're saying they want to stop sinning, they hate sin, but then they don't take any precautions in order to ensure that it doesn't happen again. First uh, John, chapter two and verse three. Now, by this we know that we know Him. If we keep his commandments, he who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He who says he abides in him, ought himself also to walk, just as he walked. That's verse 6, but verse 5, I skipped over it. Uh, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him, by this we know that we are in him. Okay, so... How do we know that we know him? Remember, I said this a minute ago, John 17, 3, knowing him is eternal life. Having a fellowship with him is eternal life. Now, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Friends, First John 1, if you're saying it means we always have a sinner life all the time, you're never keeping God's commandments. Never. You're the epitome of defeat and wickedness and hypocrisy. But the epitome of, of Christianity that I see in First John is holiness victory, obedience,
keeping God's commandments. And if you're not doing that, you show that you don't know him. You show that you are a liar and the truth is not in you. If you claim to know him and yet are not keeping his commandments, you're not walking in holiness and obedience before him. And you're not being perfect. You're not per- perfect either, as First John uh, uh, 2.5 says. And that's how you know you're in him. So you don't know him. You're a liar. The truth is not in you. You have no fellowship with him. You're not cleansed of your sins. Um, and you are not in him if you're not obeying him. Okay? But if you say you abide in Christ, you're in him. You ought to walk just as he walked. Okay, First John chapter 2 and verse 15 through verse 17. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the Father, the love, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, be he who does the will of God, abides forever. Do you want to abide forever? Do you want to be on the new earth, the new heaven and the new earth? If so, you need to forsake the world, forsake the lust of your eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, because if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you, and you will pass away with those lusts. And so that, that doesn't comport, those three verses not comport with the common interpretation of 1 John 1 8. Now, does it? 1 John chapter 2 and verse 29. If you know that he, talking about Jesus, is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So you must be practicing righteousness. But if you're sinning every single day, you can't go a moment at a time without sin. You are not practicing righteousness. You're not doing any righteousness at all. All you're doing is practicing sin. First John 3, 3. And everyone who has this hope in him, this hope of Christ when he returns and is revealed, purifies himself just as he is pure. Now how was Jesus pure, friends? Was he just a little bit pure? Was he sinning every single day and thought word and deed? No. He was completely and utterly perfect and pure morally in other ways as well. But we're talking about moral perfection here. So we ought to purify ourselves and be pure just as he is pure. But if you're holding to the common interpretation of 1 John 1, 8, that doesn't, that's not you. That's not you. 1 John 3, 6. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. And so what they're saying here is if you're abiding in him, you won't sin. And abide means remain in him. So they're talking about people who are in him. If you're doing that, you won't sin. Okay? First uh, John 3, 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. So if you practice righteousness, then you are righteous just as he is righteous. Let no one deceive you, little children. Let no one deceive you. If you're not practicing righteous as he does, as he was, you're not righteous as he was righteous. And if you sin, you're of the devil. And according to 1 John 3, For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. What's the works of the devil? Sinning. God wants to destroy the sinning in your life. He wants to take it away. Not only forgive you of it and cleanse you of it, and take away the guilt and shame of it and the punishment of it, but take away the practice and the doing and the committing of it. That's what God wants to do for you. 1 John 3.10 In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Let me ask you a question. Can you continue to be a sinner and love your brother? Let's say you're not even sinning against your brother. Well, if you are sinning against your brother, obviously you don't love him when you're sinning against him. But let's say you're not sinning against your brother, you're sinning against someone else, you're just sinning against God. Can you love your brother and do those things at the same time? Of course not. You're not being a good example for your brother. Uh, you're giving him a bad example. You might be leading him astray by your own sin. And you're surely, because you're not walking in holiness, you're obviously not uh, living for God. Um, you're not going to be an example of what he should be. Not just what he shouldn't be, but what he should be. First uh, John chapter 3, verse 18 or 19. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know we are of the truth 
and shall assure our hearts before him. How do you know your other truth? Not by loving him in word or in tongue. I'm a Christian. I sin every single day. But in deed and in truth. And by this, by what you do, by this we know we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. So many people, they want assurance of salvation without obedience to God. Not going to happen. Unless you want a fake assurance. You know, I've heard many uh, Christian teachers and pastors say things like, well, if you're a Christian now, you've actually used in your heart, your sins are forgiven, nothing you can do to lose your salvation. And uh, if you feel guilty or feel shame or feel con- condemnation when you sin as a Christian, that's just the devil. Wow. It's not the devil, friends. It's God. It's the Holy Spirit. It's your conscience that God has given you, convicting you, accusing you. If you were doing right, your conscience would excuse you. If you are doing right, the Holy Spirit wouldn't convict you. He would encourage you and spur you on. Don't uh, don't get confused into believing that the Holy Spirit and the conscience that's been given to you by God is the devil. The only way you can have assurance of salvation if you're walking in holiness before God. And that's not what you people say 1 John 1 8 says. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. So, so God is love. But what does Jesus say about love? John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John fourteen twenty one. He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Yeah, if you don't love, you know, the, the whole law is fulfilled in two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. If you're not loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, because you're sinning every single day, you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. And if you're not loving your neighbor as yourself, you're not loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And every sin you commit is either against God or people or against both. So you must love to know God, and knowing God is salvation. First uh, John chapter 4 and verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this. They may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. Are you just like Christ in this world? Christ isn't here in this world anymore, friends. He's up in, at the right hand of the Father. But it should be as if he never left. Because Christians should be as he is in this world. And that's the only way we can have boldness in the, on a day of judgment. If love has been perfected among us. If we truly love as we ought to love. Loving God and loving our neighbor. Otherwise, we have no assurance. Otherwise, we can't be bold on the day of judgment because we are guilty and full of shame and we deserve whatever God gives us. First John chapter 5, and verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. See, these people who hold to these, this common interpretation of 1 John 1, 8, hopefully you're not one of them. But if you do, you're, you're telling me that God's commandments are too burdensome to keep. But 1 John 5, 3, in the same book, written by the same author, just four chapters later, less than four chapters later, says that his commandments are not burdensome. And the love of God is to keep his commandments. And he says right here, for whatever is born of God, are you born of God? Are you born from above? Are you born again? Overcomes the world. They're not overcome by the world. They overcome the world. And what's the victory that overcomes the world? Our faith. Well, you say you have faith, but you have no works. Your faith is dead, according to James 2, 19 and 20. First uh, John chapter 5 and verse uh, 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. So if you're born of God, you're not going to sin. And if you've been born of God, you keep yourself, you guard yourself, you protect yourself, and uh, you stay in the, the Spirit, you walk in the Spirit, you stay in your prayer closet, and the wicked one won't touch you. He can't touch you. Uh, he can't... He can't uh, can't do anything that will make you uh, cause you to sin. So, and you know, I could go through a lot more. I could go through 
uh, some other scriptures that um, you know talk about holiness, but that's not what this is about. I just want to show you that First John one eight, just according to John's own epistle, the rest of the epistle, you know, the verses that his book ended with, and the rest of the whole epistle, uh, does not give credence to this uh, common interpretation of First John one eight, and so we need to throw that interpretation out the window, unless you're going to say that that verse. Uh, is gonna is gonna help you interpret the rest of the book, and you're gonna end up misinterpreting the rest of the book. So First John one eight, if we understand, like I said at the beginning, that this this is written to the Gnostics, or not written to the Gnostics, but written about the Gnostics to help protect Christians from the Gnostics, these people who you know basically claim to be super apostles who had this super gnosis, this special knowledge that no one else had, and they would deliver these messages of gnosis from God that was in complete disagreement with what the apostles taught. But they knew the apostles were from God. You know, John proves at the beginning of 1 John, he says, we, which we have heard, which we have seen with their eyes, and looked upon, our hands have handled concerning the word of life, concerning Jesus. So they know exactly what Jesus said. They're eyewitnesses. They're not relying on this supposed special knowledge to give them this understanding of, uh, you know, what God meant about things, and what God really says. And, and so... The Apostle John gives them the truth. And so if you understand it, that it's written about Gnostics, and, and you know, I should go through this and show you other things, like 1 John 4, 2, which talks about if you come, if you confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, you're of God. If you uh, claim that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh, you're not of God. And so uh, he's talking about Gnostics there who are not of God because uh, they say that Christ didn't come in the flesh. So what does 1 John 1, 8 say? Well, it's talking about the Gnostics, going back to this understanding they had, or this, what they believed here, that, um, you know, your flesh could be sinful, could be doing sin, drinking beer, you know, fornicating, cussing with your tongue in your mouth, but your spirit can remain perfectly holy while your flesh is sinful. Now that person is basically denying that they're a sinner, while yet they are sinning, and they are a sinner. And that's who 1 John 1 8 is referring to. These Gnostics, who claim to not be sinning, they claim to not be a sinner, all the while they are sinning and they are a sinner. And such a person is deceiving themselves. So basically, first John 1 is saying, is saying if you are sinning, if you do have sin present in your life, and you're not admitting it, then you are deceiving yourself and the truth is not in you. And so John's coming against that idea. Not against this idea that we can live holy and obey God. The whole rest of the epistle and all the Bible talks about that and confirms that and affirms that. And so you need to believe that and obey that. Okay, well hopefully that was understandable to you and you understand all that. If you don't, you can just ask questions. Uh, but that's, you can read through the rest of First John. You can see Gnosticism all over it. But let's move on to the second uh, passage of scripture I want to talk about today. Um, which is 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. And I want to start in verse 14 and read all the way down through verse 17. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the positions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is a sin, and there is sin not leading to death. Okay, so the the verses in, in question here are verses 16 and 17, talking about sin to death and sin not to death. What does that mean? Well, there's been several uh, common interpretations of this. One is that... Um, you know, if if you sin enough uh, as a Christian, God will just kill you and, and take you to heaven with him early. And so, uh, which is this nonsense. There's no scripture to base that upon. You know, they try to quote First John three, First uh, Corinthians three, but I've done another video on that on my Refuting Calvinism channel, and so you can look at that. But um, when it comes to that's just nonsense. Um, God's not going to reward you, take you to heaven early. Uh, by giving you, because you're sinning so much, because you're sinning these heinous sins or these more sins and sinning so much that God just wants to kill you and take you out of this world. It's not the way it works. God does not God's character. God does not reward disobedience. 
and taking as a Christian, taking me out of this world is a reward. That's a reward to me. Uh, you know, in this world, for the Christian, there's suffering, there's pain, uh, there's persecution, there's hatred towards us. And so that God does not reward the sinful. Out the window. Uh, another common interpretation of this is usually brought along by a guy who wrote a book against condi- about conditional security and against uh, once saved, always saved. And he said that there are certain sins that uh, will not cost you your salvation. Um, and I don't know where he gets this list from, but he'll cite things like worry, uh, worrying about something, or being uh, not being completely. I think he gives uh, not being completely thankful about something. Just different, you know, different sins that obviously the Bible says are sins that he says will not cost you your salvation as a Christian. Well, that's just nonsense too. I mean, where does it stop? And where do you get this list of uh, of sins that just don't cost you your salvation? And where does the Bible say that God uh, rates sins in that way? It's my understanding of sin that every sin or any sin could cost your salvation, and every sin or any sin could uh, lead to hell, <clears throat> even if you're an unbeliever. Uh, so I, I reject that as well, and and this uh, idea is based upon uh, the fact that in First Corinthians six nine and ten, Revelation twenty one eight, Revelation twenty two fifteen, Galatians five, uh, you know these different passages where it lists sins and says if you're doing these things you will not inherit the kingdom of God. The idea that uh, certain sins won't lead you to hell and won't cost your salvation um, is based upon the idea that those are exhaustive lists. That uh, if anything's not in that list, maybe it won't cost you your salvation. Nonsense, friends. The wages of sin is death. That's what it will cost you. It costs you your soul. Um, and so, if you're being, and it leads to, it leads to Christians being lax in those things. I mean, if there's no punishment, no repercussions for being unthankful, why should you be thankful? Doesn't the Bible say? Uh, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Um, you know, about worry. Jesus says, do not worry, because it won't even add a, you know, anything to your stature, in, in Matthew chapter 6. And so, he says not to worry. You know, having food and clothing with you, you should be content. And so, if we're told not to do something, we shouldn't be doing it. It's a sin, and it can cost you your salvation. It can lead you to hell. So I reject that as well. <clears throat> and then there's also um, another interpretation, which I think uh, would be legitimate. The first legitimate, one, the first two are not legitimate in my opinion. But I think it might be legitimate where it's basically saying that sin to death here is talking about you know sins from the Old Testament that you might have gotten stoned for. Or uh, you know, you might have, uh, you know, been killed for. It's actually a sin that you get killed for by the state. But I, I don't see that in the context here. I don't think that's what it's talking about. Uh, the context, of course, is prayer and us praying. And, uh, and so I, I really think this is, this is talking about, you know, God's perspective. I mean, you see in verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin. And there is sin not to death. I'm going to take out the italicized words, because they're not in the original, so we can get the, the what the original is fully saying here. So all unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not to death. So I think verse 17 is referring to um, the sin not to death is a sin that you're uh, unaware of, or you're ignorant of. And, um, you know, if we were to go to some of Paul's epistles, we would see this uh, agreed upon, and... Um, you see in the Romans chapter 5, for example, in verse 13, For until the law, which is the law of Moses, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. And so, uh, if there is no law, there is no understanding of something, there is no knowledge of something, God does not hold you accountable for it. It's not considered sin. And of course, you have James 4.17, uh, which says, uh, Let's see here. James 4, 17. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So there's knowledge there. That to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now, we can go into other verses about the two, but I'm not going to do that right now. Uh, I'll just I'll give you something you can look at for yourself. You can look at 2 Peter 2, uh, 20-21, which talks about how if, if you have knowledge, 
and you turn away, your your latter end is worse than the beginning. Luke twelve forty seven forty eight, John nine forty one, and uh, John fifteen twenty two, I believe, are all talking about that. Just some notes next to James four seventeen in my Bible. Okay, so there is a sin that does not lead to this. So from God's perspective, let's say you're doing something that you should not be doing but you're unaware you should not be doing it. You don't know you shouldn't be doing it. And, uh, of course, God knows because God's omniscient. And from God's perspective, it's sin. It's unrighteousness. All unrighteousness is sin. But there's a sin not to death. And I assert to you that sin not to death that is referring to in 1 John 5.17 is the sin of ignorance. The sin that you're unaware of. So it's... It, you, you could you could call it an unintentional sin. Like I said, that, that scripture, those two words put together, is nowhere found in the New Testament. So it's not as if it's unintentional. The person is doing it intentionally, but they don't know it's sin. Okay? And in 1 John 5.16, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin to death, he will ask, or sinning a sin not to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not to death. So, who are you asking? That's the question. Well, in context of verses 14 and 15, you're asking the Father. You're praying to the Father. So if you see a brother committing a sin not to death, or a sister committing a sin not to death, in other words, they're unaware of it, uh, they're not, they don't know it's sin, and you know they know that, or you think you know that, you know that, um, that you've never told them this, or they're unaware of it, then you can pray for them. Now, it's not saying you can't talk to them, but it says if you ask, and you're asking God. So you can ask for that person, and uh, God will give him life, which means God will make them aware of it. He'll make them understand it, so they can come to a knowledge of the truth. Uh, and then he says there is sin to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. So if a brother is sinning, or a sister is sinning, something they know is a sin. For example, if I you know, I have a brother in a fellowship who maybe he struggled with drunkenness in the past, and he's repentant of it. He knows it's, it's, uh, it's wrong. And then I, you know, I'm preaching outside a bar, and he comes to my other drunk. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pray for God. I'm gonna rebuke. I'm not gonna pray to God. I'm gonna rebuke him. It doesn't say you can't pray about it, uh, but it doesn't say that you should pray about it. So I would assume for someone like that, that you should rebuke them. You should confront them. That's what they need because you're not giving them new knowledge. But if someone's unaware of something, you would treat them a little bit differently. Uh, you know, you wouldn't. Uh, if a blind man tripped over the curb, you wouldn't kick him and say, you stupid blind man, what are you doing? If a blind man ran into you when he's walking, you wouldn't push him or get mad at him because he doesn't know what he's doing. He's unaware of it. Um, but uh, if you were somehow able to give the blind man eyes uh, that he could see, and then he started running to people, bam, 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 uh, eventually you would say, yo, what are you doing? Why You, you treat me a little bit different than someone who's unaware. And so, same situation here. He's, he's, he's giving us counsel. Give, uh, John is giving this, these people counsel, and us counsel, ultimately, on how to treat a brother who is in a sin not to death and a sin to death. Okay? Uh, so I think that's what it's saying in context. All unrighteous sin, but there is sin not leading to death. Okay, so we talked about, in this teaching, the, sins of un, the unintentional sins, and that unintentional sins were not held against the person until they are aware of it. And they were responsible to do something about it after that, bring an offering. But it wasn't until they were made aware of it that they would bring an offering. And so this confession of uh, unaware sin or sin I don't know about is nonsense. It's nowhere found in the scripture. You can only confess of sin you do know about. And uh, just as a side note, it brings to my, my remembrance people saying, well, what if I forget to confess some sin? Is God going to you know hold me accountable for it? Well, if you're sinning so much, friends, that you're forgetting to confess of some sin, there's something drastically wrong. I'll say that. But if, because of a slip of memory, a failure in memory, you forgot to confess a certain sin, but you actually did repent of it in your heart and mind, and you didn't you know, go to God and get on your knees and say, God, I'm sorry for it, but you actually stopped doing it, I don't think God's going to hold that against you, no. But most people who ask that question, they're saying they're basically saying, I sin so much and so often, I can't remember all the sins I'm committing, therefore I can't remember to confess them all. That's completely different. You're an ungodly unbeliever. You don't believe Jesus Christ. You don't believe God, you don't believe the Bible. You need to repent. You need to stop your sinning. So we talked about intentional sin. We just talked about 1 John 1.8 and how that's not saying 
that we always constantly have to have sin in our lives, otherwise we're deceiving ourselves. That's nonsense. If you think you have to have sin in your life at all times, you are deceiving yourself, according to the rest of 1 John. And we saw how, how 1 John is dealing with the Gnostics there. Uh, all throughout it, and you can read that for yourself some more, and how he's constantly talking about holiness and obedience, and that's how you can know that you're a believer. And I wonder why he's saying that. Because he's coming as a Gnostic who says your flesh can be sinning, but your spirit can be holy. So what's people going to do if they believe that? They're going to go out and sin, sin, sin. And just blame it on their flesh, which is inferior to God gave to them. But John, who heard the truth from Jesus Christ himself, told these people the truth and tells you the truth. That you need to obey God. And if you don't obey God, you don't know him. You're not in him. Um, you're not righteous as he is righteous. You have no fellowship with him. You have no fellowship with other believers. You're not cleansed of your sins. Uh, you have an ungodly mindset. You have to always keep on sinning. You're calling God's commandments a burden to keep. And you have no assurance of salvation. And you're of your father the devil. That's what the Bible says about people who hold the first John way, the common interpretation of it, and live according to it. And we looked at first John five, sixteen and seventeen, which talks about these sin of death and sin not to death, and I explain it to you that it's sin of ignorance and sin of of with full knowledge. Now, let me just say this to, to finish up here. Just because people can sin unintentionally or sin ignorantly. You know, and I'm not saying God is holding against them. Keep that in mind. Remember my first definition I gave you of sin earlier, earlier this, in this teaching. That God's view of sin, because they know everything, is different than your view of sin, because you don't know everything. Okay? But once God reveals it to you as sin, you must do something about it. But just because there is a such thing as intentional sin, unintentional sin, in terms of ignorance, it does not mean that God considers you as a sinner while you're doing that. And does not mean that you can sit around and continue to be ignorant about things. You need to press in to know God. You need to read the scriptures. And the dangerous thing about that is that the more knowledge you have about the scriptures, the more knowledge you have about God's will, the more you're getting your prayer class and God can reveal other things to you, the more accountable, the more responsible you are. And the more condemned you will be if you do not obey the knowledge you do have. Very dangerous to gain extra knowledge about God, to go further and deeper with Him. But you must do it. You don't need to be lazy or sluggardly concerning your faith, concerning the reading of scriptures, concerning um, getting in your prayer closet and knowing God and making Him known. You need to press into these things. And uh, you know, my goal is to, if there's anything in my life uh, that's from God's point of view is ever unpleasing to Him, I want it all out. Every little trace of it and bit of it. So I can be completely holy according to all knowledge I could possibly have according to morality and sin and, and righteousness. So hopefully this helps to clear up some things for you about unintentional sins, sins of ignorance, those kind of things, and whether we always have to have sin in our lives. Um, so hopefully you understand that. Oh, I almost forgot. Just one more, one more thing I want to talk to you about concerning this uh, last teaching on the doctrine of sin, doctrine of man. One more thing people would bring up as sort of an excuse for sinning is this issue of sins of commission and sins of omission. Let me give you some definitions for those. Sins of commission are things that you do that God tells you not to do. Okay? So if God says, Thou shalt not lie, and you lie, that would be an example of a sin of commission. Sins of omission are those things that God tells you to do and you don't do. Praying, hiding his word in your heart, evangelizing, preaching the gospel, you know, being patient, loving your neighbor yourself, those kind of things. <clears throat> and so people will take these two things and say, well, yeah, you might be able to be completely holy and not sin in the sense that you're not committing sins of commission. But there's nobody who can who is not, you know, at least unintentionally or ignorantly committing sins of uh, omission. And they'll cite verses like uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18. It says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So they'll say, well look, if you're not constantly rejoicing every second of your day, or constantly giving thanks for every single little thing, or you're not praying every single second of every day, then then you're committing a sin of omission. 
And, well, there's two problems with that. One, I don't think that's what the Apostle Paul was saying. Okay? There's other things we have to do in life besides pray, besides give thanks, besides rejoice. Uh, we must also sleep. We must eat. We must drink. <clears throat> you know, if we have, uh, you know, if we're part of a church fellowship, we must fellowship. Um, if we have children, we're raising our children. We're spending time with our spouse. Um, besides praying and rejoicing and giving thanks, we must also read the scriptures. We must also evangelize. This brings to uh, to mind Mark sixteen fifteen, going to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And so they, they can ascertain from that scripture that if you haven't gone to the whole world, I mean, have you gone to Timbuktu? Have you gone to the Congo jungle? Have you gotten to... Uh, to Tibet? Have you gone to Mongolia? Have you gone to Siberia? Have you gone to Antarctica and preached to every creature? Oh, then you're not being obedient. You're committing a sin of omission. And so the, the pr problem that they're having, one, is that I don't think that's what Paul is saying. Because there are time constraints on sins of omission, or supposed sins of omission. When it comes to sins of commission, thing God says don't do, and you do them, there's no time restraints on that at all. You should spend absolutely no time doing those things. So there's no restrictions on obeying that, <clears throat> of keeping that commandment of don't do this and whatever it may be. When it comes to sins of omission, there's time restraints on it. So I don't think that's what the Apostle Paul was saying. He wasn't saying rejoice while you're sleeping. Uh, he wasn't saying, you know, pray while you're doing this or that. Simply saying, using hyperbole, I believe, to, you know, have a, first of all, have a spirit of rejoicing, a, a attitude of rejoicing and thankfulness and prayer. And pray as much as you can. Rejoice as much as you can. Give thanks to as much as you can. <clears throat> he, wasn't say, he wasn't literally saying that if you, you know, if while you're sleeping at 3 o'clock in the morning, you're not rejoicing while you're sleeping, then you're in sin. That's ridiculous. So one, I don't think it's the Apostle Paul was saying because there's time constraints on sins of omission. Number two... Uh, if you are going to hold to that definition of sin of omission, that if you're not obeying 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, and Mark 16, 15, the way that such people interpret it, then you're also accusing Jesus of sin. Because Jesus wasn't always preaching. Jesus wasn't always praying. He wasn't always giving thanks. He wasn't always rejoicing. Sometimes he was preaching. Sometimes he was giving thanks. Sometimes he was praying. Sometimes he was sleeping. Sometimes he was eating. Sometimes he was instructing his disciples. Right? He wasn't always doing all those things at the same time. So, you're going to end up accusing Jesus of sinning. Okay, did Jesus go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? No, he stayed in Israel for the most part. He said he had been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so, the sins of omission have time constraints on them. So, what we must do is preach as much as we're able to, according to our ability, according to the time we have. Pray as much as we're able to according to the time constraints, according to our ability, according to the time we have. Um, the Bible never says you have to pray for four hours a day, or you have to pray, pray for a half an hour a day, or you're in sin. It doesn't give those kind of standards, so there's flexibility there, and, and every man will give an account to God for how he uses his time. No doubt in my mind about that. So you need to use your time wisely, <clears throat> but um, it's not as hard and fast as it is with sins of commission which you shouldn't be spending any time doing any of those things. But I suspect that the real reason people bring the sins of omission up is not because they really believe that it's a sin if you're not always giving things. Like if you, you know, for some reason you sit down and, and eat a meal and you don't give thanks to God beforehand. I mean, we do it every meal, but uh, if you're not thinking about every bite, you're in sin. You know, you're in sin. Um, I think the real reason why people will apply or impose the standard of sins of omission is because they have some sin in their life, sins of commission, things they know they shouldn't be engaging in at all, but any even, even a second of time, and they want to accuse you of sin in order to bring you down to their level so they can feel more comfortable about their sin and feel justified in their sin. Because listen, if everyone's sinning, then what's the big deal if they're sinning, right? What's the big deal if they're sinning if everyone else is sinning? If everyone's sinning, then... I guess either everyone's going to hell or God's going to forgive everyone. So that, that's kind of the, the suspicion I have when it comes to people who bring up the sins of omission and commission. So all of that makes sense. Uh, it helps you to diffuse these people who want to, you know, 
stand up for sin and put down righteousness instead of the other way around. And, uh, you know, part of my goal in life is to destroy all the excuses sinners have for sinning. And hopefully this destroys one more excuse for you. So you can live completely holy for God. And obey Him in thought, word, and deed. Every single day. Every moment of every day, friends. God bless you.